Hi, just before we begin this episode, I want to let you know about a really exciting event coming up for Let's Talk Social Work. On the evening of Monday the 12th of June, we will be recording a special episode of the podcast in front of an audience ahead of the Basra 2023 conference. The venue is Conference Aston in Birmingham and will be starting at 7.30pm. We'll be exploring the role of podcasts as a learning resource for social work, holding up a mirror for a session of self-reflection and I'm looking forward to questions from the audience. I'll be joined by Patrice Bentick, Senior Practitioner in Camden Council and friend of Let's Talk Social Work, Joe Hanley, Lecturer with The Open University and Dr Sylvia Smith, host of the Social Worker Matters podcast. It's free for Basel members and there is a small admin charge of just under £5 for non-members. Places are limited so you'll need to book in advance and I'll include a link in the show notes to the booking page. You don't need to attend conference to come to the podcast recording, so if you are in the Birmingham area and you like the podcast, I'd really love to see you there. I know it's going to be a really fantastic evening. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McLenaghan, and today my guests and I are returning to the issue of poverty in the UK. We remain gripped by the cost of living crisis, and while we are all being affected, for some, rising prices represent an inconvenience. But for those who prior to the crisis were experiencing poverty, and for many millions of households which were already struggling to make ends meet, the impacts have been devastating. Last week, the Office for National Statistics reported a fall in the rate of inflation to 8.7%, the impacts of which were accurately encapsulated by the New Statesman headline, Hurrah, we're getting poorer at a slightly slower rate than last month. These problems are not going away and even if the government gets a handle on inflation, an enormous task remains to address the factors that resulted in one in five of the population living in poverty prior to the cost of living crisis. With me to discuss poverty in the UK are social worker and founder of Food is Care, Dominic Waters, Dr Kira Fitzpatrick, lecturer in law at Ulster University and anti-poverty campaigner, and Johnny Adamson, Communications and External Relations Officer at the British Association of Social Workers. If you'd like to follow any of my guests on Twitter, Dominic is at SW, Kira is at C underscore Fitz underscore, and Johnny is at J-O-N underscore Adamson 92. Johnny, Kira, Dominic, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you guys doing? Kira first, how are you? I'm doing welcome okay, back. thanks. Great to be yeah. back. Um, well, great to be back, but uh, worsening circumstances, which I know we're going to get into today. So, Indeed, indeed. You were on, I think it was May 2021, we were talking about the Northern Ireland Assembly yes, uh, elections. Yeah, that was absolutely. right. Yeah, and we talked a lot in that about poverty. So thank you, Kira, for coming back. Uh, Dominic, it was July last year you were on? It's just you and me. This time we're having to share. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. And Johnny, for the first time, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. Thanks. Yeah, I'm the newbie. Um, you are? Yeah. <laughs> you feeling good? You okay? I am. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. You do a great job with the podcast, Andy. So I do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Johnny. I'm not going to ask any hard questions. You don't have to butter me up. But thank you. That's very <laughs> appreciated. What a nice guy. Um, Dominic, I mentioned you were on in July 2022. We talked about your living experience of poverty and the challenges that you and your family have faced. Since then, we've seen prices rise for gas and electricity, but also the cost of food, which, according to the latest figures from the Office for National Statistics, has risen by 19.1% over the last year. That's not a, that's not a mistake, 19.1%. 
can you tell me how things have been for you over the last 12 months? Food is care is your campaign. Food is central to what you do as a, as a, as a dad who's providing for a family, but also as a campaigner. How have things been for the last year? Yeah, I think for so many single parents, um, often in council estates up and down the country, it's been pretty unmanageable. The council estate where I live, um, the shop on the estate, it only sells the lowest quality of food produce. So I'm living in a food desert in the Garden of England. To, so it's not just the... What, what I'd like to stress is it is the price rises and the impact that has, but it's also the lack of access to nutrition that a lot of people um, living in poverty face. And it can just, it, the impacts of it, of that um, experience of food insecurity are broad um, and as shown and central to social work and my campaign, Food is Care, is food poverty impacts on a person's both physical and mental well-being, ability to engage in society, and it can really kind of dim dim your aspirations and, um, yeah, leave you feeling pretty hopeless. Damak, has your own diet changed over the last year? Have you have you noticed it in terms of what you can afford? Yeah, I, it has. I've been. It it has, and I've had to be a lot more resourceful if 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 it was even possible. Um, using my local Canterbury Food Bank. And I have to touch upon this, and thankfully it's shown, and I think it it needs to be discussed on on a on this platform and on broader um platforms as well. But let's start it off. That universal credit, as I wrote in my first book in 2021, I believe I was the first to ever say it as someone actually on universal credit. It's a dehumanizing system and it just doesn't allow for already struggling families to flourish. Quite the opposite. It makes them feel like they're, you know, that they're unsuccessful and, you know, cannot cope. I mean, it's a punitive system in many, many ways, Kira. I mean, this is your area of expertise and I'm keen to know what the research is telling us about what it's been like over the last 12 months. But in terms of what Dominic said about universal credits, we're going to talk about the two-child limit later on, so I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But in many ways, it feels like a system which is there to kind of, you know, well, I don't know. Punitive is the best word I can think of it. The fact that you only get a child element for your two kids as if as if a third or fourth child doesn't deserve to be looked after, as if a, a, the first two kids in a family get to go to school and the third and fourth kid have to have to stay at home. You know, if the, the first two kids in a family can go to hospital and the third and fourth kids can't, you know, it doesn't make sense. Absolutely. And just to agree with what Dominic has said completely, um, as I've said a couple of times and various articles and, and research reports were at a precipice of conditionality in the social security system. And what conditionality means is that you have to evidence to the British state that you're deserving of your benefit entitlement and that you've done enough to, to get that benefit entitlement. And really, I can't see how the system can be made any more brutal. The brutality of the system is at an all-time high. 
Um, and that's why we're seeing quite disturbing headlines in the Telegraph, for example, over the last two couple of days about how we should crack down quite disturbingly on people who are in receipt of sickness and disability benefits. Um, so you can see the kind of reverberation that this sort of rhetoric um, and approach to Social Security has on political thinking and it's really really quite disturbing I mean just just in relation to that though Kira, in terms of this social security in terms of immigration and stuff this government is a government which runs on rhetoric not yeah, research absolutely absolutely which is exactly what I was going to say next in terms of that the whole idea of food and food insecurity I'm actually just writing a wee bit about that at the minute and you know there's about 20 percent of people in England who are food insecure which means you know they can't they can't meet their their needs sufficiently to to have a, a healthy life. Twenty six percent in Wales um, and twenty two percent in Northern Ireland. So you know. What about Scotland? Gary, don't leave Scotland. Out. <laughs> I know I don't. I don't want to leave Scotland out, but I actually don't have the figure for Scotland. And um, Johnny, Johnny will give you a yeah, bye ball. Yeah, maybe so. Johnny will give me a bye ball. Um, but I would hope that Scotland may not be quite as um, severe as that because of the various mitigations that they've put in place for children and so on, like the, the, the Scottish Child Payment. But it may be too early to tell um, because it's, it's, it's relatively new. But, uh, you know, it's a huge problem and it's not about people not working hard enough. Um, it's about uh, a decade, more than a decade of austerity um, and continued cuts to public services, even during the cost of living crisis. Yeah, I mean, I just figures and figures from the JRF from 2019, 2020, sorry, JRF, Joseph Rowntree Foundation, highlight that around two thirds of working age adults in poverty live in a household where at least one adult is in work. So the idea that poverty is something that happens to people who don't want to go to work is a total myth. Complete myth. And we're, you know, we're increasingly seeing that play out at um, food, food banks and food parlours and all the different iterations of food aid providers where, you know, people that are, are, are seeking a food parcel for the first time um, or a lot of people that are in work. Uh, my worry about it is also the fact that um, we're seeing this increasing division between people who are in work and seeking food aid, but also those people that are out of work and seeking food aid. And there seems to be quite a bit of, I suppose, bitterness that's grown between those two particular groups of people. So I understand the the focus on, um, to a certain extent, of, you know, parents that are working um, still being, living in poverty and experiencing food insecurity. But I think it's, it's important to stress that, you know, that feeds into this idea of deserving and undeserving. So as a single parent, when my daughter was in primary school and living in council estate poverty, I'd have to get two buses to get her to the primary school, two buses to get home, then two buses to go and collect her. And so I couldn't do anything um, unless it was between the hours of 10 and 2. So it would, it wasn't, there, there weren't many jobs or if not none that were kind of available to during those hours. So I think it needs to be, um, or I feel I would like to highlight that there are parents that, especially single parents, that actually are in a position, especially when their kids are very dependent, where they can't work. 
And Dominic, thank you for clarifying that. And I, when I was given that figure from the JRF about uh, in-work poverty, I wasn't for one second suggesting um, anything to do with deserving and undeserving, but I think it's, it's appreciate you you bringing that point in. Thanks thanks very much. Now, in terms of uh, the cost of living crisis, it, you know, it really sparked an interest in the issue of poverty because those with middle incomes, perhaps, who had never previously experienced any significant impacts due to rising prices, they were for the first time uh, feeling the pressure. Dominic, but as you've said to me before, you know, for many people in our society, there has always been a cost of living crisis. This is nothing new. But my concern is that uh, as those who remain comfortably off have adjusted to the initial shock, you know, much of the attention previously paid for by the media has moved on. So from your perspective as a campaigner, uh, is that making campaigning for change more difficult? Yeah. So my campaign, Food is Care, we're really trying to bring about change and highlight that this is this is something that has um, been experienced by the poor long before the cost of living crisis was unpopularized and it is only now that you know food in food poverty um and fuel poverty are getting the focus that they are to do due to like the broader um elements of society that the price rises are impacting but i'm i'm really not not um moving away from campaigning and food is care we're going to be announcing our our five objectives uh, for this year and the year coming, one being that and directly speaks to the the price rises that the cost of living um, has brought about and also the living experience of being a parent in poverty is that free school meal vouchers that I get for my um, daughter are still at the same rate of three pounds a day that it was at the beginning of the cost of living crisis. So, but what you could get then for three pounds is a lot more than what you can get right now. Yeah, 19% inflation, Dominic. Yeah. yeah, for the same amount of money. And that isn't being discussed. What is more being discussed is how, you know, more people, more children need um, free school meal uh, vouchers, which in no way um, am I against and support. But as someone that, has their daughter calling them or texting from school saying, dad, can you top up my thumb? Because that's how she pays for her yeah. um, school meals. It shows that the the amount isn't enough for the child to eat. And also, Dominic, just, just on that point, I mean, if you, inflation rate's 8.7%, the rate of inflation for food is 19.1%. That means for households that are, you know, finding it hard to make ends meet, they're going to be spending a greater proportion of their income on food. They are then disproportionately affected by the higher rate of inflation on food than wealthy households are. So it's it's one of those things I think that often gets unmentioned. And with inflation, it's confusing because when rates of inflation come down, we have to keep reminding ourselves that doesn't mean things are getting cheaper. That means things are getting more expensive less quickly. So, yeah, I mean, people who are finding it hard to make ends meet will be disproportionately affected by rising food prices. 100%. And then that reflects in with uh, the food bank use. So, I mean, Trussell Trust, um, its end of year statistics for the year 2022-23, they show that food banks in their network distributed close to 3 million emergency food packages between 1st of April 2022 and 31st of March 2023. And that's the most parcels that the network has ever distributed in a financial year. It represents a 37% increase from the same period 
in 2021-22. Dominic, some would argue that the government has left it up to charities to pick up, um, you know, where cuts have been made. Is this type of scenario sustainable in the long term? I think I think it's it's or yeah, it's certain that it's taking food banks, especially from the figures that you've just noted, it's taking food banks to step in where a government is is um failing and being neglectful, especially to the poor who don't have that safety net in place where they can um cover and have that margin to be able to um, survive and and flourish. Johnny, Kira, I'm, I'm kind of keen for your perspective on this. I mean, if we go back, this is going way back to the start of the coalition government, the Lib, Lib Dem Conservative Coalition, when David Cameron was talking about the big society and having more involvement of civil society in, in terms of provision of services. Is it too much to suggest that the rise of food banks links directly back to that that sort of thinking, you know, at the start of the, the decade of austerity? Yeah, and it, it, I suppose it's that argument of, you know, is it an, an ideological reason why the government aren't stepping in? Or, or is it that sort of just abdication of responsibility? Um, and which is it, Johnny? Which, if I were to push you? I'm going to fall right in the middle and say it's a bit of both. <laughs> I, I saw a feature on Channel 4 News the other night, and it, it was about... <laughs> Because you're talking about obviously charities stepping in. Of course, the charities are doing vital work in this area. But this feature was focused on um, just just community. You know, local shops who were were given, say in Scotland, we we give tick. You know, it's basically credit um, so to people. So if they can't afford the food now, it's kind of eat now, pay later, which was the phrase being used. Um, there was you know, local barber shops that were given free haircuts to people, uh, long-standing customers who just couldn't afford it anymore. And they were obviously describing it as, it's not just a financial thing, but it's actually just someone's self-worth. Someone can't afford to even get their haircut. And, and the, the impact that that has on them uh, in so many ways, it, it's damaging. Um, and there was loads of little pockets of these examples going on in, in this town. Uh, I can't remember where it was, but somewhere down in England. Um, now, presumably this is going on across the country. And again, it's leaving it up to individuals, to small businesses who themselves, you know, are feeling the pinch and they're, they're struggling in many ways to almost come out and they're being forced to provide that support. Now, not in any way suggesting that, that people wouldn't provide help anyway. I think that that speaks to, you know, a strong, tight-knit community spirit that we need. But you're right, it's, it's almost being born out of, um, yeah, that abdication responsibility at a much higher level, uh, and I think it's it's a kick in the teeth for people when you know if they do decide to get engaged in politics and watch prime minister's questions or or anything else in parliament, and uh, you've got a government who are robustly defending what they believe are policies that are doing enough, and then they they sort of cast blame in other areas, and of course there are other factors as to why. We're seeing high inflation just now and rising costs, not just in food, but across the board, high mortgage rates, rents, which all feeds into this melting pot. Um, but th- there does seem to be a lack of kind of political will and appetite to tackle this head on in the same way that, you know, the pandemic, when COVID came, that was a crisis. Well, this is a crisis just now. The word crisis doesn't get diluted. If it exactly is a crisis, then it needs government and indeed politicians from across the political spectrum 
to treat it as such. Thank you, Johnny. This episode is going to be published on the 1st of June. Uh, we're recording, just check, yeah, it's 26th of May. Two days ago, the charity Christians Against Poverty, abbreviated as CAP, C-A-P, published a report outlining the experiences of the people it supports uh, in the UK, so its clients for 2022. The report is called Taking On UK Poverty, and I'll include a link in the show notes to that report. It highlights figures from the Money and Pension Service that 9.3 million people in the UK are facing problem debt and are in need of debt advice. And as I understand, it is people with problem debt that the charity works with. And their report highlights that 54% of their clients have sacrificed meals at least monthly. 61% couldn't afford basic toiletries like soap, toothpaste and sanitary items. And shockingly, 50% of Christians Against Poverty clients had considered or attempted suicide as a way out of debt. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, one in five people living in the UK are in poverty, and that's 14.4 million people. Johnny, I know Baswell has a number of asks that it's seeking government and the opposition parties to support. Um, the first concerns the debt breathing space. So if we just reflect on the, the Christians Against Poverty figures there, the fact that 50% of the people who are using their services have considered or attempted suicide as a way out of debt. Can you start by explaining what the debt breathing space is? Because not everyone's going to be aware of it and what changes Basel is asking for. Yeah, and just very briefly, I mean, those are horrendous stats that you've just read out. Um, and I think it speaks... And you can become inured to them, Johnny. Mm. I think we very yeah. easily become inured to them. It's that one of 50% of people attempting or considering suicide really kind of shook me and, mm. and reminded me that the, the preceding stats are equally disturbing. Sorry to interrupt. No spot on. Um, and it speaks to how wide-ranging poverty is and all the different sort of facets in life that it affects as well. And you're right, stats can become quite numbing. Um, and I think it, it speaks to how important bringing real-life experiences into the equation is and why Dominic's campaigning and his work is so important because it brings that human element to the fore and people can relate to that um, and they can identify with it. Um, and, and we need that that kind of balance of both in order to get points across. Um, but, but just on the, the breathing space um, scheme more generally, so the reason why you and uh, probably others, and I met myself as well before we started this campaign, hadn't heard about it, is it's relatively new. Um, so it came in during COVID, the bill was passed, uh, I think in 2020 or the back end of 2020. Uh, and obviously the couple of years preceding it, um, the regulations you know, were being laid in the legislation. Um, the scheme itself, it only applies to England and Wales. Uh, in Scotland, they have something slightly different where breathing space is built in. But it's it's essentially a pause in action um, and contact from creditors uh, for 60 days. Uh, that's a legal protection. Um, and within that time, it prevents any interest or fees or penalties or late charges um, being applied to someone's level of debt. Um, and it, it breaks down into two parts. So you have the standard scheme, which is the 60-day break, which I've mentioned. And there's also a mental health crisis breathing scheme. Um, uh, that's slightly different in that it applies for as long as someone is receiving mental health treatment, uh, plus an extra 30 days on top of that as well. And the difficulty there, Johnny, being how do you access mental health treatment in the UK mm. currently? Mm. When you think about what waiting lists are like, you know, you almost can't. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the numbers in just a minute and you, you'll see the, the divergence in numbers of people 
you know, using the two schemes, uh, and it is extremely low for those um, on the mental health one. And if you think as well about, you know, the impact that debt, problem debt has on someone's mental health and how that can then push someone to need that mental health treatment as well. So you can see why or how the numbers should be higher. Um, so Johnny, it's 60 days for the standard mm, scheme. What Baz were talking about trebling that, is that that's right? That's right. So we would like to see it going up to 180 days. Um, you know, interestingly, when the bill was first being discussed in Parliament, they looked at whether it would be 90 days. So that was a number sort of quoted. Government said, or the Minister at the time said, this would be kept under review. Um, but there's been nothing more since. And I think we have to be quite ambitious on the number of days that people get that space. How many people are making use of the debt breathing space at, at present? So, I mean, our campaign, again, is quite new. Um, we only put it together ahead of the autumn statement, which was in November last year. So the stats we used were from October 2022. Uh, and these, of course, are UK government stats. And it showed that there were 6,342 registrations in that month. Interestingly, 31% higher than the previous October, um, but still quite low. Uh, and Sorry, with that 6,000 and, and um, some extra, was that in the month or in the year? Sorry, just to clarify that. That was in the month. Um, so, okay, so okay. Across the total year in 2022, it was about 70,000. Um, so it probably- Still pretty small numbers, Johnny. Ah. I think a lot of people would be surprised by that. Um, mm. do, do people just not know about the service? I mean, I didn't know about the service uh, until fairly recently. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the government, when they did the impact assessment at the time of legislation, they were expecting around 700,000 in that first year alone. So you're looking at a tenth um, of that. And then, I mean, citizens and advice, they did uh, a response to the initial bill consultation in January 2018. So over five years ago, and they at that time were saying about 2.9 million people in the UK had severe problem debt. Now, we can safely assume that's much higher. So, yeah, the numbers that, that we're looking at are a, a drop in the ocean compared to what it could be. Um, and there's probably a few different reasons why that, that's probably the case. Um, one of which is in order to access the service, you have to get debt advice. Now, a debt advisor might say that there's you know, other courses or other of action or other support available. So it, it's not that this would be a standard approach or one size fits all across the board. But even then, you'd still expect the number to be higher. Personally, I, I think it speaks more to the stigma that's attached to, to debt and to poverty more widely, which is stopping people actually going to receive debt advice in the first place. Um, there's also something about some of the myths you know, people don't know if debt advice is free, which it is. So if they feel that they're having to pay for something on top of already having financial problems, then they're maybe not going to seek that support out. Thank you, Johnny. Dominic, in terms of the, the people you're working with uh, and, and the people, I suppose, that you're living with in your area as well, I mean, is debt something which is discussed? Is it something that, that people are falling into but aren't talking about? Yeah, I think um, a lot of people that I... Uh, talk with don't really have the access to that, that to build up debt maybe because of previous financial hardships so it isn't something that um I've experienced a lot because they don't have access to those sort of bank services of overdrafts and things of that nature Okay, okay and I suppose there's also then sort of more like problem lenders and payday lenders and things like that I mean I don't want to get into it, but even in Northern Ireland, where Kira and I are based, a big problem with paramilitary lending. 
so basically criminal gangs lending money and um, they're often beyond the scope of organizations that can actually help people who are in debt. Yeah, I was going, I was just going to highlight, highlight that very quickly because I think actually for people in the rest of the UK that can sound quite shocking, but it's actually um, becoming an, an increasing problem in Northern Ireland where people, particularly women, are, are turning to paramilitary lending because you can get the cash really quickly. Um, but obviously, the, the, you know, the, the implications of that are, are so serious because there's a real problem with actually reporting that mm -hmm. to the police because, you know, they face really serious repercussions in their community and um, because those paramilitaries are, are willing to use violence. And it's just a huge problem, huge problem in Northern Ireland. And I think a lot of people in, in the sector are really worried about just how bad it could be getting and we don't know we don't know the scale of it because it's so sort of um underground i think that's something we should come back to here because i have lots of questions but i don't want to take us down a sort of entirely different path but we, we can do that again mm -hmm. yeah yeah you're going to commit to it there was a thumbs up but Kira yeah and siobhan, oh, okay. siobhan and siobhan as well yeah, wonderful yeah. <laughs> siobhan harding yes <laughs> Thank you. So let's move on to the second ask that Basel has, um, and that is to freeze evictions during the cost of living crisis to prevent further homelessness. Johnny, tell us why Basel has prioritised that issue. Um, I think worth very quickly stating that, that even though we have our free asks that underpin the campaign, our campaign as a whole is looking at poverty much more broadly as well. So a Spotlight on Poverty series um, is doing that and trying to shine that spotlight on as many elements or impacts of poverty as we can. The asks we felt had to be quite refined. It would give us credibility when, when speaking to government and, and also other parliamentarians as well um, and, and wouldn't risk sort of spreading ourselves too thin in that and having a, a kind of too general campaign. I think we felt that housing had to be incorporated into the asks, just, just given that Social workers often deal with issues where there's lack of appropriate housing. Uh, it's a major underlying issue in, the, in their work. Uh, and the risk of homelessness is inevitably heightened as a result of that. Um, and we know that the provision of suitable, affordable housing is crucial to providing effective support. Um, and also, again, poor and inadequate housing. The, the range of, sort of issues that it can create for people and the lives of families um, so it's, it absolutely must be a priority for the government. You know, finally, we felt that there was an opportunity to, to achieve something in this as well, but it was attainable and realistic. Um, we saw during COVID that government, not just UK government, but uh, devolved governments as well, bringing in emergency measures to protect tenants during this time. So there's some evidence there that stuff can happen. We've seen it with the Renters Reform Bill going through the UK Parliament just now, which could revoke no-fault evictions, which is the Section 21 notice. So the, there's indications that the government could be moved on this and that there is more political willingness than there maybe was before. So I think we have to grasp that opportunity uh, and try and push for it. And in relation to this ask, Johnny, but also going back to the debt breathing space, space ask, mm. I mean, there are, and we're going to move on to talk about the third ask, which is around the two-child limit. A lot of campaigning going around about the two-child limit. In relation to the evictions ask and the debt breathing space, would it be fair to say Baswa has actually identified issues that others may not be campaigning on and have found, I don't, I'm not suggesting these are niche issues, but these are vital issues that were maybe being overlooked by others? 
I think certainly in the debt breathing space one, and you alluded to it earlier, Andy, when you said you know, people have generally not heard about it. Um, and I, I think there's an opportunity there to to raise awareness and highlight it. Um, I think the house, you know, banning um, evictions is a different one because a lot of organisations, and, you know, a lot of organisations doing good work in the debt breathing space as well, step change being one of them. But certainly in the housing, you know, likes of crisis and shelter, I mean, we've worked with them on stuff in the past. They're, they are the kind of go-to campaigners and the experts in this area. So it's important that we as an organisation reach out to them and see where we can offer our support um, as well and, and add our collective voice. A more general point around that Johnny's um, Johnny spoke to is about how, you know, it's also about trying to combat the snobbery that impacts on people in these positions of vulnerability. And in terms of um, the homelessness or risk of, I was coming back as a single parent student to notices seeking possession of mine and my daughter's council flat all through COVID and the beginning of the cost of living due to the failings of universal credit. So I think that it's important to highlight the intersection between the broken benefit system and um, the increased threats or um, actual homelessness. So I think that's something that would be great to kind of develop um, moving forward, and which is why this podcast and these discussions are so important. Dominic, you mentioned there the broken benefit system. We talked about this earlier. Um, the safety net has huge holes in it. The safety net is barely fit for purpose. The third ask that Basra has in terms of its campaign is for the removal of the two-child limit for welfare support, including universal credit and child tax credit. Kira, could you tell us about where that limit came from, when it was brought in, what it does, who it affects? Yeah, absolutely. So the two-child limit was brought in by the Conservative government through the Welfare Reform and Work Act in 2016. And it was based on this, again, rhetorical assumption that people who are recipients of social security benefits are reproducing in order to access um, further support from the state and to rely on the state. Yeah, people, people on benefits should face the same, have to make the same decisions as people yeah, who are using that's, that's exactly. by being in work. That's a paraphrase yeah, of what the government's, line was, of what the again government's again. line was. But actually, it's been shown to be completely threadbare in terms of its basis because, again, um, it has not made a difference. Very, very tiny, tiny statistical difference to um, low-income families' fertility decisions. And that's for a range of reasons and a lot to do with awareness of the two-child limit. And Maybe it's because people weren't having kids to get benefits, Kira. And exactly, exactly. Um, and on top of that, uh, around 56% again of those affected has somebody who's in work, which again just highlights the low-wage problem that Britain has that people are relying on universal credit to top up their income. And then they're being bitten with the two-child limit and the benefit cap as well. And, and you can be... And Kira, you say bitten, it's a, it's a big bite. I mean, the child element is worth... Three grand. Yeah. Yeah, £3,235 per year. Yeah. Massive. Imagine that was gone from your household income just like that. Huge, huge. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, 
as I always say, people, you know, people will all have their own opinions about, uh, you know, families' reproductive decisions. And but at the end of the day, the the people at the butt end of this policy are children, and it's children under six. And so, you know, in terms of government policies around giving children the best start in life, about making sure that they, you know, level up through education and attainment, it undermines all of that because what it's actually doing is completely um, crippling families' ability to do the most basic things, make sure their children are fed and clothed and have a kind of decent standard of living in terms of um, their housing and so on and so forth. So it just it intersects with so many um, social social issues um, and it's just the most pernicious policy that has ever been, I feel it's the most pernicious policy that has ever been introduced by a British government and I'm actually really shocked that a lot of people don't... That's saying something, here. That's saying something. Yeah, and that is saying something, but in family policy anyway, you know, and and so, and and, and again, awareness about just how huge the impact is, 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 is low. The impact to quantify, 359,000 households, but that doesn't mean 359,000 children. It's 1.3 million children living in those households. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I was just going to say the lack of awareness, and I found myself talking to other, even policy colleagues, that they don't they don't realise that this policy exists. And again, I just think that that really brings into focus that huge and growing gap, that inequality gap between people who are living in poverty and then wealthier people that don't understand the problems that people on a low income are facing. And that's why there is this kind of waning of uh, media attention and you know, interest in how the cost of living crisis is impacting those people who are in most need in our society. There's two things I just want to pick up on, Kira. I mean, you mentioned children under six. And just to kind of clarify, the two-child limit took effect from April 2017. So when it came in, it affected nobody because on that day, there were no children Unless it would only affect the children born in that day. One year later, it affected children born in that year. Two years on, it affected children born in those two years. So there was so little opposition to it at first because it was almost affecting nobody. And every year that goes by, more families are affected and more children are affected. And it's kind of like a, it's like a steamroller effect. Um, but the other thing as well, when you're talking about like the fertility choices of families... It totally misses the point when, when, when governments think of social security in that way. Social security is could be for anybody. You know, I'm in work and we are fortunate that we're not having to um, receive social security. If I lost my job and we did, you know, our two kids would be uh, provided for by uh, universal credit. But have we a third or fourth child? They wouldn't be. And, you know, the very easy to understand argument. You could choose to have three, four, five children and be providing for them through work and then lose your job or get sick. A social security system should catch you in that circumstance. It shouldn't be, it's, I know I'm absolutely talking, preaching to the choir here. It's, I was going to say, it's it's wild. It's not, it is, it's it's wrong and I think it's cruel. Um, but sorry, we really, we really got into that. But in terms of, in terms of Johnny gaining traction in relation to the ask, um, for the removal of the two-child limit, I'm aware the Liberal Democrats support the removal of the limit, as does the Scottish National Party. 
Um, what's the situation with Labour? They've been a bit less clear. I think under Jeremy Corbyn, they had explicitly said they would remove the tooth shell limit. Uh, under Keir Starmer, reading uh, their policy documents, it's not. It's it's a bit opaque. Can you can you tell me what do you think? Yeah, I, I suppose that that maybe speaks to the work that that needs to be done by campaign groups in order to get. I mean, yeah, everything that you've said there, Kiva and Andy, you've added to it. It, it shows how unspeakably cruel the policy is. And we need to get that messaging out there and we need to raise awareness amongst all parties because it, 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 whoever isn't going, is going to be in government next, it, it needs that collective approach to saying, well, it's not just about rescinding this policy, but it's about tightening our social security net more widely and stopping those gaps existing. Um, CPAG, Child Poverty Action Group, are one of the organisations that, that do exceptional campaign work in this area. Um, they've got so many briefings and, and different sort of challenges that they're doing to the government just now on it. Um, we're hoping to work with them on this campaign as well. Um, some of the numbers that they've done in their research to, to show how wide ranging the impact is uh, are quite startling. I mean, they've shown 87% of working families are affected by this policy. And that uh, we say affected, it's, it's affecting their ability to pay for food. Now, as, as families at work, we're not even talking about families that aren't at work. It's going to be so much higher. So, yeah, I, I think there is a lot of work to be done to to really demonstrate the, the just the overall impact of this policy on, on not just children, but families more widely and getting the political appetite for it to, to remove it. I just want to clarify, just to, to remove any doubt, um, just to be clear, we had invited each of the the parties to come on. We invited Liberal Democrats, um, the Conservative Party and Labour to contribute to this programme and none were available available to take part. But in relation to what I said about Labour, it's their Stronger Together, a Fairer, Greener Future policy document. It states the universal credit system forces those in need to wait five weeks for an initial payment, willfully pushing people into debt, while the two-child limit punishes children. The lack of fairness in struggling in supporting struggling families with housing and childcare costs undermines attempts to help people find employment doesn't say they would remove the two-child limit. So it just feels like they're kind of leaving the door open for themselves, but not willing to commit. Um, I could be wrong. If someone's listened to this um, and they're part of the Labour Party and they want to clarify that, you can email us at ltsw at basw.co.uk and we can certainly correct that in a future episode. But as it stands, I, I don't think the party have um, made it clear their position. Um, now, in terms of uh, other aspects of the social security system, I don't think Baswood, Johnny, are, are um, making the claim at all that those three policy asks are going to eradicate poverty in the UK. By any means, they are three vital areas, but there's an awful lot more that needs to happen. Labour and Conservative both have talked a lot about um, the importance of economic growth, the importance of well-paying jobs. Uh, and that's, again, with the Labour Party's five missions uh, for better um, Britain. They talk about becoming the highest sustained growth, having, sorry, securing the highest sustained growth in the G7. But in terms of a social security system, which catches people when they are unable to work um, for whatever reason, there are a lot of things that need to be fixed, Kira. Um, Joseph Rowntree Foundation, they explained in their report, UK Poverty 2023, that there are other elements uh, of the social security system which actually increase poverty aside from the two-child limit. So they talk about two-child limit, benefit cap, five-week wait for universal credit, unaffordable debt deductions and the the rate of local housing allowance. Now, 
those are all issues that you and I are very familiar with with campaigning work we're doing in Northern Ireland. But I think if we could finish maybe just by zooming in on to uh, one of those, that being um, the five-week wait for first universal credit payments. People may not be that aware of that and what it does and what it means, but can you tell us a bit about what impact that has on people who need to receive um, Social Security? So if you're signing up for universal credit, you are really forced to take this five-week waiting period um, until you get your first payment. And the government insists that this is requirement required because they use this kind of real-time information system that monitors any income that you may receive in that five-week wait period in order to calculate what your first payment of universal credit is. However, you can sign up for an advanced payment, which is a loan, and they'll estimate that payment based on your claim, uh, which really kind of undermines their, their story that you have to wait for five weeks for first payment. Um, and that loan is then deducted out of future payments. So what does that mean for a Social Security claimant? And I'm sure Dominic can reflect on this um, from his own experience of, of, of claiming universal credit. It, it immediately pushes you into debt from day one. You know, you're forced to pay those deductions, which are taken out at a quite a high level um, over the subsequent months. And it really kind of diminishes your uh, your financial stability um, in the months that follow that, that first claim. And obviously, it's really fed into some of those statistics that CAP has published in terms of people having to to turn to other forms of dangerous credit and, and loans in order to get over that that time. And indeed, it's just pushed people into destitution, which means that they can't afford to eat, heat, light, uh, keep themselves warm or keep a basic level of hygiene for two two or more weeks. Dominic, in terms of in terms of that issue that Kira's talking about, in terms of the advance payment, is that something that you experienced when you were claiming when when you began claiming universal credit? Yeah, I got um yeah, I, it was all new to me, but um, they did uh, present me with the advance payment, which I think, you know, if if you're broke, you're 90% or 99%, you're going to take it. But then it has a, as as described, it has a, um ongoing impact on the amount you receive each month. So it's automatically taken off, um, which, yeah, makes, makes, to struggle even harder on the, you know, it doesn't add up what you're, what you receive anyway, 85 pounds a week. It, you know, you can't, you, you, you can't survive, um, any, any, um, any way of trying to live, um, uh, what's the word? Good living standards. Sorry, I should say, but yeah, then having the, that taken off on top of it is, is a lot. Johnny, thank you so much for sharing about the Basel campaign. Kira, thanks for sharing your expertise. I just want to finish by asking Dominic. Dominic, what's next for you in terms of food is care? What's what are you looking to? So food is care is both um I'll just highlight a concept and a campaign. So if we can remember back to like two years ago, I, I met a lot of obstacles having food discussed in relation to social work. Um it's great that Basel is um, kind of supporting and backing the work that Food Is Care is doing. I would say watch this space um, and I'll give you two things that I kind of connect to the government question as well. 
but through a partnership Food is Care now has with Share Action, I attended Unilever, which is one of the biggest food and drink companies um, in the world's AGM. And I got to pose a question to their board. And in the coming weeks, um, I will be attending Tesco's AGM um, with Share Action and as representing Food is Care and the work that um, Basra are doing to ask you know, one of the biggest supermarkets, what steps um, are being taken to support those hardest hit by the cost of living crisis to access healthy food? And also how the government, um, and speaking freely here, should have a, should put on a duty or at least promote supermarkets to build um, or have shops, supermarkets in uh, food deserts. So then that would help people like my neighbours, like myself and um, disadvantaged families up and down the country access nutrition. And I'll just shout them out as well, um, working um, to with local authorities. I've designed a food insecurity training um, to, one, raise awareness and understanding of that inequality, but also equip social workers with the tools from a living experience of that inequality in how to work with families that are experiencing it. And yeah, once again, I say, watch this space. There's um, a lot of work being done and it's great to have support um, because sometimes it can be a very lonely pursuit um, trying to challenge big corporations, institutes, governments, um, to try and like reflect on their policies and how they're letting um, people down. So yeah, I, I appreciate yeah, all the more support. power to you, Dominic. Thank more you. Power to you. Thanks for coming on, Johnny, Kira, Dominic. It's been great talking. Thanks for coming on. Let's talk some short. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy, Johnny, and Kira.